David had the promise that there would be a son on his throne forever. Jesus came and fulfilled all these things. And God has promised a new heaven and a new earth. And just like all the rest of his promises, he will follow through on this one. He will be faithful to that promise. Well, today we're going to look at the very end of that promise, what it all leads to. So before we dive into that, let's just take a couple minutes and consider why the book of Revelation was written. Apostle John wrote that to bring some hope to that first century church, a generation that was under a lot of persecution. Emperor Nero was uh, raising havoc. It was a difficult time. John himself had been exiled to the Isle of Patmos. And he started it out by explaining why he wrote it. The revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. Well, here we are 2,000 years later, and we know these things must soon take place. We know God's timing is his timing and, and not ours. So this was written around 95, 96 A.D. by John. And uh, as you will probably remember from the opening couple of chapters, it was written to those seven churches in Asia. We have in the second and third chapters letters to Ephesus and Smyrna and Pergamum, Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and Laodicea. This letter, this, this book by John, reveals the unseen spiritual warfare going on between God, Christ, and the church, and the forces of Satan. And though Christ has won a decisive victory on the cross, the church, even to this day, continues to be assaulted by Satan, the dragon, as he's symbolized in Revelation. He continues to bring persecution. Scott mentioned that in the prayer, and we think about that with our missionaries overseas. I had a chance to talk with Mark Borsick recently as he's spending some time in the U.S. They can be as free as they want with commerce in China now, a change from the heavy-duty communist days. But if they talk about politics or religion, they're risking persecution. There have been arrests of people in house churches there. We see people living in places like Indonesia or in Africa who are just under such poverty and persecution, yet their faith remains strong. We see the assault of false teaching. They had that at that time. In our Wednesday night study, we've been hearing about the false teaching that happened uh, with the Colossians. And we see that so much now. There's a cable channel dedicated to false teaching. And, and people hear wrong things all the time, things that divert them from the true faith. Even our affluence... Even the poorest of us in this nation are extremely affluent compared to the rest of the world and compared to history. And that affluence, it diverts us from knowing our need for God. It's something that we have to struggle with too. It's something that the church faces. And even cultural approval, trying to blend in, trying to pull in pieces of the world into our worship, or trying to look cool maybe to the world. Well, Christianity is not about looking cool or looking like the world. This is the most radical, countercultural thing that's ever hit the planet. But by showing us the tribulation that will go on between his first and second coming and showing that there will be an eventual triumph, Christ victorious, they were given hope by John and we are given hope by the Apostle John. Now, a couple of words of caution. You know, they say you shouldn't uh, talk about politics or religion with people. Well, when we talk about politics around here, I don't feel too badly about it because 
Many of us are on the same page. And certainly, we all talk about our faith with each other a lot. But when you start talking about faith, there are some subjects that become difficult. Uh, Eschatology or end times things become difficult. We can get into a sticky area there, especially because there are a variety of views on eschatology that all have some strong biblical support. And you can make a good case for the different views that people have, except some that are way off the deep end. But there are various views that that all kind of work out, and you can make a, a good case for them from Scripture. Here at ECF, we don't have one end times or eschatological view that everyone here must hold to be a member. There are churches like that. There are churches in their bylaws or their constitution that say you must have a pre-tribulational, pre-millennial view or you must be an amillennial in order to be part of that church. We don't have that here. In fact, our statement of faith on the end times is this. We believe in the imminent, literal, and physical return of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in his glorified body. That in coming, he will complete his kingdom, render final judgment on all creatures and creation, consigning the lost to a literal and eternal torment in the same lake of fire into which Satan and his angels were cast. That he will perfect all of the elect and gather them into his unveiled presence for all eternity, destroying and recreating the heavens and the earth. So that's something we can all agree on. How we get there from now to then, we may have some different views on. I've got my own views on it. They're constantly changing and evolving as I study the scriptures and read what people have had to say. And I'd love to talk to you about that some other time, but we're not going to get into that there today. We also have to remember something about Revelation. It's the genre in which it's written. We must remember that while Revelation is describing reality, it's describing things that will come to pass, it's doing it in very symbolic language. So we have to remember that there's a lot of symbolism and understand what those symbols mean. You know, for instance, Jesus is portrayed as a lamb. Churches are portrayed as lamps on lampstands. Satan is portrayed as a dragon with seven heads and ten horns. Horns. The, the symbols are sometimes familiar, sometimes odd, sometimes original and strange. The theologian uh, Vern Poitras, who has written extensively on end times, he has a book called The Returning King, wrote this, and, and I thought it was so good that I thought I'd just bring this to you, kind of give you an idea how to think about things when you're reading in that book. He writes, if revelation is clear, why do so many people have trouble with it? And why is it so controversial? We have trouble because we approach it from the wrong end. Suppose I start by asking, what do the bear's feet in Revelation 13.2 stand for? Well, if I start with a detail and ignore the big picture, I'm just asking for trouble. God is at the center of Revelation. We must start with him and with the contrast between him and his satanic opponents. If instead we try right away to puzzle out the details, it is as if we try to use a knife by grasping it by the blade instead of the handle. We're starting at the wrong end. And this is uh, the first item in the notes. Revelation is a picture book, not a puzzle book. A picture book, not a puzzle book. Uh, Poitras says, "Don't, don't try to puzzle it out. Don't become preoccupied by isolated details. Rather, become engrossed in the story. Praise the Lord. 
cheer for the saints, detest the beast, and long for the final victory. Amen to that. So, as we go forward, we'll think about the big picture. You know, we can study the symbolism and maybe try to work through it, but the big picture is this. Jesus wins. If you had to sum up Revelation in two words, sum up the Bible in two words, Jesus wins. So as our text shows, and as our church affirms, there will be a new heavens and a new earth, and God has promised, behold, I am making all things new. One other thing to note before we get into the text, we're talking about a physical existence. That's your second note. Our eternal existence will be physical. We're going to have our five senses. And if some of you are lacking in some of your senses, you'll have them fully and beyond what you can imagine now. We're going to be so overwhelmed, so astonished at the beauty of what we're going to experience in that new heavens and new earth. We'll be thrilled. Uh, You know, I, I think of maybe colors being more... Red being more red and green being more green and music being more beautiful. And on top of all that, we will be filled the whole time with the beauty of God in His presence. It's not going to be an existence like we see in the cartoons or the movies. You know, floating on clouds, strumming harps. I know some of you are trying to get measured for your wings already, but, you know, don't plan on that. We will be in a spiritual state before Christ's return. You know, we think of... uh, of Howard DeJager now, in that spiritual existence before the final day and, and what joy he's having. And uh, one day we'll see him and stand with him in a physical existence. It, it's, it's not like I was thinking about this. I, I'm not much of a movie watcher, but I, I thought of the movie uh, with Warren Beatty, Heaven Can Wait, and they're kind of walking around in, uh, in uh, gray sweatsuits with wings and clouds and stuff like that, you know, uh, it's not going to be like that. James Mason's not going to be walking around with his clipboard. But we will have resurrected and glorified bodies. Philippians 3, 20 and 21 tells us, Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. What's that going to be like? Well, we don't know exactly, but we get an idea from the transfiguration. Matthew 17 is one place where that's described. and In verse 2, Peter, James, and John are, are witnessing this. And, and it's written that Jesus was transfigured before them and his face shone like the sun and his clothes became white as light. Now, Peter saw the risen Christ a few days afterwards. But he didn't write about that in his letters. He wrote about how he witnessed the transfigured Christ. That vision of bright white shining, uh, bleached as no cloth refiner could bleach it, that, that vision for Peter must have been so amazing that that's what he thought of. And that's, that's an idea of what we might be like. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15, uh, starting in verse 50. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on 
the imperishable. And this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. We will at the end, at Christ's return, wherever that is in the timeline that, that you follow, we will be raised in those new bodies. You know, and I was thinking about this uh, uh, at the time of, of Ivan's passing and was reminded of this as Scott prayed today, how Ivan was speaking to me with a smile and a twinkle and a great anticipation after all the medical things that he endured throughout his life, just speaking with great anticipation of that new body he was going to get. And one day, brothers and sisters, we'll see you in a minute. So, what is being prepared for us is physical because we will be physical. We'll be in physical glorified bodies like Jesus' glorified body. Details we don't know a whole lot, but this much we know. So let's, uh, let's dive into our text. Starting in verse 1, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. What makes it new? The new or totally revamped. And people argue over that. Is it all new or is it just uh, extreme makeover, home edition, earth edition? Is it totally new or revamped? But in either case, the universe is finally purged of sin. It's purged of it. All sin and evils cast into the lake of fire, including Satan. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, as it says in uh, chapter 20, verse 15, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Peter writes about this in Second Peter. He says, scoffers will come in the last days scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They'll be saying, where's the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago. And the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. And uh, Romans, as we heard uh, read for us today, Romans 8, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And then John writes, and the sea was no more. Well, remember the caution about maybe not getting too hung up on literalism and understanding the symbolism. Very well may be that there will be no big body of water, no tumultuous sea in the new earth. Maybe there will be some lakes or some rivers. We know there's a river of living water. But there's also a symbolic part of this. The sea 
is emblematic of chaos and danger. And we see creatures like in Job and in the Psalms and Isaiah, descriptions of Leviathan. We see in Daniel chapter 7, Daniel's vision of the four beasts coming out of the sea. Uh, The four great beasts or four kings shall arise out of the earth. We see the sea and the ocean and the waves and the danger in so many places. Paul being shipwrecked, uh, the flood, the great flood, Jonah in the belly of the great fish, even the parting of the Red Sea, we see danger. D.A. Carson, in his daily devotional book, says, the absence of any sea does not establish the hydrological principles of the new heaven and the new earth. The sea, as we have noted before, is symbolic for chaos, the old order, death, and so the sea is gone. So it's not only a physical large sea that we see is gone, but also all the tumult and the chaos and the danger, anything, anything that could challenge the new order of that new earth. And then John writes, And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Well, we see two aspects here. Again, thinking of the symbolism. We see the dwelling, and we also see the people who dwell there. Now, I'll give you an example of how you could see both the people and the place. We'll get into that in a little bit, but think about this. Think about going maybe to the Eastman Theater to see a concert, and the performer will walk out onto the stage and say, Hello, Rochester. Well, they're speaking hello to you, the people of Rochester, not to the buildings and the place. So there's an aspect of Rochester that is the place, and there's an aspect of Rochester that's the people. And here we'll see that as John is talking about the New Jerusalem, he's talking about not just the place, but the people who inhabit, who dwell in it. There's some amazing dimensions given of this New Jerusalem. Ahead in, uh, in the part that we didn't read today, in verse 16, John gives us the dimensions of this new Jerusalem. He says it's 12,000 stadia on a side. A stadia is 607 feet, or like two football fields long. So each side of this is about 1,400 miles on a side. The length and width, the height are the same, so it's a cube. 1,400 miles on a side. That makes it about two-thirds the size of the moon. Huge in the description here. And he describes some amazing beauty. He talks about 12 different jewels in verses 19 and 20 that correspond to the, uh, to the gemstones on the breastplate of the high priest in, uh, that you would find back in uh, Exodus 28, one for each tribe. Of Israel, He describes the 12 gates of the city. There were 12 pearls, each made of a single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold, transparent as glass. John is describing a city of just such great beauty that we can't even comprehend it. Unimaginable beauty. So there's perhaps more symbolism here than literalism. We've we got to remember that the dimensions, 12,000, There's a 12 for the 12 tribes, and a 1,000 is a large number, a complete number, a perfect number. We see beauty in the gems and the pearls and the gold and the glass. We see the cube, the cube itself, an emblem of perfection. And also the cube seen in the Holy of Holies in the temple, 20 cubits on a side, the place that the glory of the Lord filled. That was a small cube. This is 
a huge cube, and it's a place where the glory of the Lord will fill it. Is it going to look exactly like John described? Well, remember, there's reality being communicated here through symbolism. So maybe it will be of those dimensions he described. But I think more importantly, what we can know is it will be immense, it will be perfect, it will be beautiful, and it will be beyond anything we can even consider in our small minds right now. And as I said before, New Jerusalem is more than just a place. It is the home of the bride, the church, the people of God. John in verse 9 says that he's taken to a place where he can view the city, and the angel says, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb, the bride of Christ, adorned in the beauty of the new Jerusalem, is ready for the wedding feast. And you believers are that bride of Christ. You're going to be there in fellowship with him and in fellowship with each other. I was thinking about that uh, on New Year's Eve as we're gathered together for communion, how special that was to be together. And Lord willing, if uh, the weather cooperates, that we can do tonight and gather together for communion and get just a glimpse of that, that social aspect that we'll have when we're together with Christ in that place. And I thought about the kind of social activity that I had ten years before. Uh, Dr. Smith mentioned in our communion service about how hard it was to, to, to imagine that it had already been 10 years since all that hysteria about Y2K. And I was thinking about that. I was at a party on Y2K, and I'm guessing I haven't seen any of the people that were there in at least five years, maybe more. A lot of them in my Christian walk don't want to have anything to do with me or kind of shun me or whatever. Some of them I probably don't want to have anything to do with either. That was a big, raucous social event. We had a quiet, reverent one over at our church. And let me tell you, that quiet, reverent one in fellowship with the saints, a preview of what we're all going to have together, was so much better. That new Jerusalem is a community of the people of God, filled with unspeakable joy. In verse 3, we find out that it's more than just a community of the people of God. I mean, what would be this great paradise? What good would it be if God were not there? It reminded me, and here I am dating myself, although I wasn't alive when it was first broadcast, but... It reminded me of a Twilight Zone episode. And thanks to the Internet, you can watch every episode of the Twilight Zone online. This is one from 1960. Some of you may remember it. The main actor in it, the one that any of us would remember, was Sebastian Cabot. Later in the 60s, when some of us of a certain age were kids, he was on that uh, kind of insipid show, Family Affair, that my sister loved and I detested. But he played Mr. French, the butler, or whatever he was. But... In this episode, here he was with his beard and everything, but everything was white. His hair was white. His suit was white. Everything about him looked, for all intents and purposes, angelic. Now, there's no good theology in this episode here, but it's, it's an interesting illustration. There's a, a robber in this episode called Rocky Valentine, and he's trying to break in a place or something, and he gets shot by the police. Next thing he knows, he's waking up, and there's Sebastian Cabot, this big round guy with a beard and all. And, Hello! You know, he talks to him and says, uh, you know, the guy's 
kind of wondering, doesn't trust him what's going on. But soon he finds out that this guy, uh, who calls himself Mr. Pip, uh, this uh, character, this uh, Sebastian Cabot character, says, well, do you need anything? Do you want a suit? I've got a whole closet full of suits here. I've got beautiful food for you. He says, what else would you like? And he says, uh, yeah, I'd like some dames, as he says. You know? And, and uh, women come in, and he wants to go gambling, and he goes gambling, and he wins every time. He's getting everything material to him that he would like. And he thinks, how could this be? Now, I was a lousy guy, and here I am in heaven. Because he's getting everything. Well, as the episode goes on, he gets really bored of having everything he wants all the time. He's bored of the women, bored of the food, bored of winning every spin of the roulette wheel. And he says to Sebastian Cabot, playing Pip, he said, you know, I'm tired of it here in heaven. I want to go to the other place. And Sebastian Cabot says to him, what makes you think you're in heaven? This is the other place. And he laughs uproariously as the episode ends. Well, the point of this is that a place that's beautiful to you or has everything you think you could want but is devoid of the presence of God is just no place you want to be. The best part of all of this is what we see in verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. That is the most important part. That's the most beautiful part. God being with man. There's no temple in the New Jerusalem because it's all temple. The temple was a place where people met, went to meet with God. Here... They will be with him and conscious of his presence the whole time. It's the return to the intimacy that our first parents had in the garden, walking in the cool of the garden with God. It's the fulfillment of the Word being made flesh and tabernacling with us. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, as John wrote. It's the promise of Emmanuel, God with us, as we see in Isaiah 7.14 and Matthew 1.23. And we receive the Spirit of God. When you become a believer and you get that new heart, you receive that Spirit of God, that's a down payment for what you're going to have. That's a, a glimpse of that. It's the promise in this new earth, the promise of Jeremiah and Ezekiel being fulfilled in Jeremiah 31, 33, and 34. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will give their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. And Ezekiel 37:27, My dwelling place shall be with them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And in that place, you, Christian, will know God's presence. You'll be glorified and sinless. You'll finally be able to do this, which we're all commanded to do, but none of us ever do, which is to love God with all of our mind and heart and soul and strength. We will be able to do that. That is who we will be. That will be our existence. What a glorious thing that will be. And there'll be no more tears. No pain, no sadness, no, no tears, no death. The voice continued, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. 
for the former things have passed away. Well, look around you. Look around this world. We see sickness. We see death. We see disability. We see injury. When we see a child born with a birth defect, when we see somebody with an illness, when we think about things this past year, a a, a little finger smashed in a car door, or a kid flying over the handlebars face first, those things come from sin. Those things come from sin being brought into our existence. But with sin conquered and gone, none of that will remain but the joy of God's presence. The curse that entered the world when our first parents sinned in the garden will be reversed. The curse that this creation is under will be gone. Isaiah 25, 6-8 says, On this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast Over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations, he will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. Tears, pain, sorrow, all of that gone, replaced by the joy of knowing the Lord all the time. And then verse 5, And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. God is making all things new. All things will now be perfect. God is sovereign over all things. All he has planned from the beginning will come to pass. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Jesus Christ is the Alpha and the Omega. And from the throne, he says, it is done. Does this remind you of something? It's done. How about Jesus on the cross? John 19.30. He says it is finished and he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Jesus did more than just save a people unto himself at the cross. His sinless life of obedience, his death, his resurrection, accomplished all of this, all that has happened and all that's about to take place. Jesus is not just reconciling a people. Jesus is reconciling all of creation. We heard from Colossians this morning. Colossians 1, 19 and 20 says, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. All of this will be reconciled. Futility wiped from the landscape. Tears wiped from every eye. Sin wiped from the hearts of the church. And sin and evil wiped away and cast into the lake of fire. Things will be back where it began, but it's going to be better. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. At the end, he's creating a new heavens and a new earth. At the beginning, God created light, and he put lights in the heavens. At the end, there will be none of those lights, because he himself, God, will light that new Jerusalem with his presence. In the Garden of Eden, after they fell, Adam and Eve hid from God. In the new Jerusalem, we will commune with God. We will be with him always. 
Genesis begins with paradise, but it's a paradise that's lost. But paradise is regained, and it's better than before. It cannot be lost, and we will receive from the spring of water of life without payment. The end is better than the beginning. And that brings us to the last two verses, 7 and 8. And that brings us to the question, which will it be? That reconciliation of all things by the blood of his cross just leaves two destinations left for men and women. For those who are in Christ, for those who conquer, they will have this heritage and I will be his God and he will be my son. Son or daughter. But son, in this case, talks about getting the inheritance, like being the one who inherits all this. For those not in Christ, the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, pharmakia, not pharmacists, sorcerers, idolaters and all liars, their portion will be in the lake of fire that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Now, doesn't that laundry list sound like our own fleshly unsaved hearts? Like it says in uh, Jeremiah 17.9, I shared this the other night at the uh, Open Door Mission, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? When we look at ourselves, we see that those things that would cast us into the lake of fire are things that are part of our own unsaved nature. But fortunately, there is Christ. Christ came to reconcile all things. He came to reconcile a creation, and he came to reconcile a people. And now's the time for all of us to consider our own rec- reconciliation with him, to consider our own hearts, to understand whether we're trying to rely on some kind of cosmic scales of being better, more good than more bad, or whether we understand that there's a perfect righteousness that's needed and it's only found in one place, and that's in Jesus Christ. It's time for us to consider our own hearts, consider our own salvation with fear and trembling, make sure that we're certain in the faith. And if you're not certain in the faith, or if you've not come to really know Jesus as your Savior, it's time to think about these things. These things are promised to come to fruition. There will be a place of eternal damnation, and it's a place all of us deserve to go, and all of us are already condemned without Christ. So which will it be for you? Will it be eternal paradise and the joy of an intimate knowledge of God forever? Or is it going to be eternal torment? I pray that we will all see each other. All of us in in this room, our loved ones who are believers who have passed on, Howard, Ivan, all kinds of people that uh, we have lost in the past year that will see each other again with all tears wiped from our eyes, all pain behind us, and a great community in fellowship with each other and with God. Behold, God is making all things new. And as it says at the end of Revelation, Come, Lord Jesus. Amen. Father, we do understand and we do believe that all these things will come to pass. What you've promised for us, a new heaven and a new earth, new glorified bodies, no pain, no tears, no anguish, 
no sin remaining in us, we know, we understand that these things will happen. We know that until that time, there are things we have to struggle with. There are going to be trials that we have to face. There are going to be difficulties. We understand that these are part of what will refine us for that day. And we do pray that you will continue to see us through all that. What a glorious picture you've painted for us in your word of what is coming for us. An eternal, joyous, physical existence, totally consumed with the joy of your presence. Oh, we look forward to that day with such great anticipation and great love and adoration for you. We pray that every one of us who is in this room today, that we will see each other on that day when that trump shall sound and the Lord shall descend. We praise you and thank you for all this. In Jesus' name, amen.